0: Guys, Welcome to episode 190 of Talking With TK. I'm your host Tristan Connell. A little bit different today, we're going to be hitting the rugby union field and one of the legends of the Wallabies and also former assistant coach of the Wallabies from last year in Nathan Gray. So he's got plenty to tell. He's got a great backstory. So really looking forward to bringing you this one at the back end of the podcast, we also talk a little bit about coaching as well. And Michael Checker, so plenty in store over the next hour or so. But uh, definitely check out some of my stable mates at the Diamond Tina Podcast Network. Really proud to be associated with the boys. Some of my funny, the, my favorite ones are some of the funny ones like Petruda Advocate, but also recommend the Halfcast Podcast and Dylan France. They're kind of long form interview from some professional athletes themselves. So some great perspectives on those podcasts as well. Thank you to everyone that's leaving reviews, whether that's on Apple podcasts or Facebook. If you get a little bit of time, if you can leave me a review, that's the best thing you can, you can do to help me continue to grow the show. And I really appreciate everyone sharing. Sharing the word with your family and friends. I've had a lot of people tag me on posts on, you know, all the different socials and also just hearing out and about the people listening to the show. So I couldn't have done it without you. So thank you very much. If you want to connect, please find me on Facebook or Twitter. I'm at Talking With TK. You'll find me at Instagram, Tristan Nell, K-N-E-L-L. Or if you want to have a yarn or any guest requests or suggestions for the show, send me an old school email, Tristan at Talking With TK.com. My book, Talking With Champions, that's out now. So it's 75 of my favorite interviews. Lots of absolute legends from the NRL to some American sports, the likes of Evander Holyfield, Larry Holmes, George Foreman, some sporting royalty in there. So there's there's some ones that I haven't put on Talking With TK before, likes of Jonathan Thurston and Anthony Mundine as well. So check it all out. It's called Talking With Champions. You'll find the book at Dimmicks, Booktopia, or Angus and Robinson. All right, guys, excited for today's episode, and I introduce Nathan Gray. All right, guys, my special guest today is Nathan Gray. Nathan is a former professional rugby union player who played 35 tests for the Australian Wallabies, winning the World Cup in 99, and also playing 94 games for the New South Wales Waratahs between 98 and 2005. He's made some impressive strides in his coaching careers, which included starting in Japan, He's also been assistant coach at clubs such as Melbourne Rebels, New South Wales Waratahs, where we won a super rugby title, and also the Wallabies. A welcome to the podcast, Nathan Gray. Nathan, welcome, buddy. Yeah, thanks very
1: much for having us. Um, yeah, looking forward to chilling the fat and talking footy.
0: Yeah, mate, it's going to be a good one. Mate, you've got a very – just doing my research – you've got a very unique childhood, mate. If I'm getting this right, born in Gosford, lived in Papua New Guinea and Fiji – then you moved to Gold Coast, where no, sorry, Queensland, where you went boarding school at Southport. Now, mate, this yeah. is this is going to get some great yarns out of this one. But talk to me a little about your family and how you kind of, if this is all true, how how the adventures all started.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's all true. It is definitely true. By uh, yeah, born up the sunny coast, and um, when when I was four, we moved. My father worked for for Burnsville, okay. So we moved over to Fiji, and. Um, yeah, my mom and dad, we had three kids. I've got an older brother and an older sister. We're all three years apart. And, uh, yeah, and we were living in, living in. Uh, oh, sorry, to New Guinea first. And I just had the best memories of, of, of the whole experience and, yeah, went to primary school over there and got photos of going to primary school and taking it all in. And then, yeah, then we moved to, to Fiji again through my father's work and, yeah, it was really seamless. Like I, I look back now as a as an adult and with uh, with with kids, and I just had the best memories. But it would have been really tough for my mum for my mum and dad. It would have yeah. been really tough. Um, but we never knew that as kids. So you know, as a as a parent, I take my hat off and yeah, and think, geez, that would have been re- really tough for them. But yeah, great memories, and yeah, uh, you, to think that that hasn't rubbed off on me personally. Is, uh, is crazy so yeah it's it's funny how things shape us
0: yeah but i think that's what life's all about you know learning people's different cultures seeing how people live and you got exposed to that so early just between those two and then later in your career you went to japan and then you got that experience too that that's what it's life's all about isn't it just learning how people just all are different but at the same at the same time isn't it
1: definitely and you and whether you're conscious or subconsciously um, learning things about dealing with people in different cultures, the frustrations of trying to communicate the the differences in skin color and yeah. people's traditions and what they do and their food and stuff like that. I as a, as a kid, I, I never really I never really thought of it of anything other than normal. Yeah. And then as an adult, you know, moving to Japan with the, at the time we moved, my wife and I, we just had the one child. We originally were gonna go for, for eighteen months see what it was like and we ended up staying for five years and we had another couple of kids while we were away and yeah it's funny how those environments shape you and shape your shape the way you deal with people and and essentially for me how
0: how i coach and want to lead yeah for sure now you know you you spoke about going to school in these overseas countries how much different was it to what we do in australia
1: well, again so at the time it's it's very very similar I we went to an international went to an international school in Fiji and a, and a, and a, a local primary school in New Guinea okay. and yeah in terms of in terms of syllabus and and what we were being taught um, I assumed everything was normal and yeah. it seemed quite similar but a lot of those international schools um, are sort of run by government agencies and have really good support but yeah my memories of schooling over there were were fantastic. Uh, um, yeah, really enjoyed
0: it. Okay, mate. What's the first sport that you played? Because I know you didn't take rugby up until you actually hit Queensland.
1: Yeah, I was really late. Hey, I was a, I was a big soccer player, and I remember as a kid playing a lot of soccer and um, kicking the ball around, and a little bit of um, a little bit of touch football, yep. um, like just old school touch football, and and volleyball, and played a bit of basketball, and sort of tried just. Lots of different sports as I was as I was growing up, and it, yeah, and it wasn't until I went to um, I went to high school to boarding school on the Gold Coast that um, I sort of stumbled into rugby. A heap of my mates were, heap of my mates were going down to the training ground, and I was didn't have that many friends. I had a couple of new. I was a new kid, and um, we went down, and they're like, oh, what are you doing this other? I was like, oh, "Well, I'm just going to head home back to the boarding house," and they're like, "No, no, come down and um, try try rugby." Okay, so. Got down there and um, and the coach was, uh, all the kids were sitting down and the coach was saying, okay, he had a big clipboard and he's, I want you to say your three favourite positions. And I was going, I was just sitting there going, shit, I don't know any, I don't know what any positions at all. Yeah. And heaps of these, all these kids started saying, oh, yeah, second row, uh, hooker, prop, uh, fullback. Uh, inside center 58 and I'm just going to myself what is this another language what is this <laughs> and most of the most of the kids sort of said 58 inside center so I just said that and yeah that was my, that was the start of my rugby journey
0: okay well before we get into the rugby stuff mate you know to go to boarding school yep. usually it's a tradition following in a father's footsteps or you're naughty so mate which one was it
1: <laughs> uh, i think i think neither and um yeah it's interesting because my sort of my family history a bit of my family history is my father. My father, as he when he grew up, he his father left him um, and and his mum, and had a, had a bit of a difficult difficult childhood. And mm. my father never really got um, the opportunity to to have a really good education. Um, and then yeah, it's quite interesting because post that into his adult life he sort of reconnected with his stepbrothers and there's three of those four of them and three of them are doctors one's a psychologist wow and his father was a his father was a doctor as well so dad dad really never really had that opportunity to get that really good education so I think when he took the family overseas he was quite adamant about trying to provide a really good educational Mm. experience for us as as kids so part of the deal of going overseas was that um, the company would pay for the education and, and, um, and yeah, knowing now what I do about school fees, holy shit, it's, um, <laughs> it's crazy. So for him, for mum and dad to be able to work overseas and then send the three of us to, to boarding school in Australia it was a massive sacrifice and, um and my my dad's mum lived on the Gold Coast. She lived at Palm Beach. Yep. Um, and so that was the connection and that was the only real – he had um, his, his sister and lived on the Gold Coast as well. And so, yeah, so my sister came over to boarding school first okay. with my brother yep. and, I, and I stayed in Fiji with mum and dad. And then, yeah, as the years progressed, yeah, we eventually all, all ended up in boarding school. So, yeah, yeah that's how I got there.
0: Yeah, but you went to a, a cool like rugby school, really, because Matty Rogers was he in the grade above you or below you? It was that's what it was. Yeah, he right? was
1: he was he was two below me. Two below man, you. When what? I went to TSS, they
0: were crap. Really? So, what did we you guys were, change we your were, fortune a little bit?
1: No, I think it was just one of those things, you know. As a the school was had a, like I couldn't speak more highly of the school. It was so good, but we didn't have a very successful rugby sort of program or history of. Of rugby at the school, mm. and um, yeah, and I think it got really, it got really strong after you know, guys. Matty Rogers was there, Nathan Sharp was there, and now there's a, there's a litany of XSS Wallabies now, which is fantastic. But prior to that, it was it was it was pretty thin. So I always have a running argument with Nathan Sharp because they uh, he was a school captain there, and he's a bit of a bit of a god, and they. They made a new stadium, not a new stadium, a new grandstand at the on the main oval, and they called it the Nathan Sharp
0: oh, grandstand.
1: So, yeah. you know, I give him give him stick about that, and one day I'm going to replace it and make it the Nathan Gray stand. So,
0: <laughs> Mate, they could have given you something like the Nathan Gray canteen, the Nathan Gray change room, <laughs> something.
1: Give him something. No, I, I wasn't. I, I only, yeah, because it was funny because I, my last, I played in the I played in the first 15 for three years and Mm. the first two years I played in the centers. And then the last year I played half the season at center and then half the season at number eight. So, yeah, it was really, it was, I I just, I just really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, mate, you know, your style, you know, you love contact. Obviously you're very proficient with your defense, but just speaking earlier in this year, I spoke to Roosters assistant coach Craig Fitzgibbon and he just broke down the whole defensive part of rugby league and the biggest thing that came yeah. up that really just touched me a lot like there's a fear of contact for a lot of players and i know that you obviously being a professional you know that yourself but what yeah. made you embrace that contact
1: it's a really good question um tristan i sort of and I, I i've thought about it for years and years and um i don't i don't really know i do remember i do remember being having that fear mm. um and then i i had a remember a moment where i was playing it was under 14s in at in crosby park in brisbane and uh and this guy was kind of running towards me and i just thought right well, it's him or me i'm going to i'm going to commit to it and i'm going to go and it ended up being a decent a decent shot and i suppose that little bit of confidence came from there and and then you add you add technique with that and then you get a lot of confidence from having that technique and having that understanding that with good technique, it doesn't really matter the size of the person or mm. whatnot. If you've got good technique, then you can be really effective in in the collision. So, and I think as I as I got a bit older through uh, when I left school, like that was I saw that was a point of difference for me. Like I wasn't I wasn't very I wasn't very skillful. I wasn't very big. Mm. Um, I wasn't fast. I wasn't overly agile. But I, I really like to hit people and. And, and that was sort of something that I felt as though oh, I could bring that, if I could bring that to a team, then that would be, that would be a benefit. So yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of how, how I got into that.
0: Yeah. It was interesting. I watched your little seminar you did with uh, Greg Mum, and just, you had a few little, Oh yeah, yeah, I thought that was really good. And I was just watching a couple of little clips that you had with Bernard Foley and you were just showing kind of where he comes in a little bit wrong. And obviously with him being a smaller player, he needs yep. to get all efficiency to, you know, obviously use yep. his body into the into the tackle. But how do you get, especially for yourself back then, and then obviously what you teach now in your coaching? How do you get yep. good at defense?
1: Well, I put it down to you know to two things in that in that seminar. It's about it's about tracking, which is about putting yourself in a position to make the tackle, and understanding how you can do that and yep. and the dynamics around that. And then secondly, it's it's the hitting process. So it's getting yourself in a good position number one and then actually going through with the tackle with with the correct technique. But, you know, the, the, there has to be an underlying willingness to to want to do it mm. and, and it's great when you see, it's so rewarding when you see kids really tentative and really shy around defence and tackling and then you give them a few little tips and they get it and it's like, you can just see these lights going on and it's so rewarding as a, as a coach to be able to do that. Yeah, Um, And that's something that I find real intoxicating about, about coaching because, you know, you provide that and and a lot of those kids and it's subconscious, but they're going to, they're going to keep that with them for the rest of their lives. And that's pretty bloody cool to be able to, uh, to be able to have an influence. Yeah.
0: But it, it is a big hurdle, isn't it? Because I don't think kids realize that they're in a safer position, learning how to do it properly. Than not making the contact and being in a, a still position where they then just get hit, so it's exactly. in their best interest to actually learn how to do it and embracing it because it's fun. You know what it's like. Remember when you hit Brian O'Driscoll and you absolutely drilled yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is fun yeah. in my regards.
1: Yeah. Or well, at the you 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 have the technique and then you have confidence and then you know how that's going to help your team and yeah, it becomes becomes really uh, it becomes something that 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 gives you lots of confidence and that transfers into lots of other things as well. You know, not only, not only on the rugby pitch, but also, you know, also in life, dealing with things in the schoolyard and whatnot. And then, you know, as you're growing up, dealing with your friends and whatnot, if you've got that confidence that you can sort of look after yourself, then it's going to, it's going to put you in good stead.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Now, mate, for a very proud New South Welshman, Now you signed your first deal with Queensland so tell me a little bit about the early days and how you got actually mixed up you know, with that uh, that other mob.
1: Yeah, well, I I was hoping you weren't going to bring that up, mate. I've got yeah, I've got two, I've got two Queensland caps of which, you know, look when I when I when I left when I left school, um, and I was on the fringe of that of that sort of professional era in sort of ninety five ninety six. Yeah, there was a couple of decent um, there was a couple of decent centres running around in Queensland. There was a couple of blokes called Tim Horn, Jason Little, Daniel Herbert and Pat Howard. Jesus. Um so just those blokes. There's not many rugby people in the world <laughs> that don't know every one of those names. And then you've got this young upstart Nathan Gray who's, you know, coming into a into the Queensland program and um look and those guys were were in front of me. Great mentors, great guys, really, mm. really helped me out. Um so then, when yeah, so I never could get a game for Queensland, obviously because back then the there weren't that many games. So Queensland were well, if those guys were injured, there's someone else to come in. You know, Patty Howard ended up playing, and there's lots of lots of quality players in that spot. So I was going through the 20s under 20s program, yeah. under 21s program, the Australian under 21s program, and then I kind of finished that and. Yeah, and then the year I think was '96 when uh, France came out to Australia, and they were playing. Uh, they were playing Queensland, and they were playing the Wallabies all within the same sort of ten, fourteen day period. Yep. So all those blokes were off with the Wallabies, so they couldn't actually they couldn't actually play for Queensland. Okay. So yeah, so I got a, I've got an opportunity, and my two yeah my two queensland caps are against bloody france yeah good so
0: was it at belly was uh,
1: yeah yep yeah, at Ballymore. and um yeah fantastic memories and then yeah then i got the opportunity to to head to south wales and the following following year in 98 i actually played super rugby against pat howard who was playing for the rumbies yeah and then against uh, against Jason, Daniel, and Timmy, who are all at, at Queensland.
0: Yeah. How, you know, that competitiveness because, you know, that quality that you just said, that's four of the best centers, plus yourself, five of the best centers that's ever played for the Wallabies, right, coming through at the same era at the same time. How much does that drive you? And then being originally from Queensland, when you came up against yeah. them, was that that little extra chip on your shoulder to play good?
1: Oh, yeah, I was always, like, Timmy Horan and I are great mates but, and we see each other now and he still calls me the young bull. <laughs> like, I'm the young bull and he's the old bull. Yeah. Like, we, and oh, it was it was a massive motivating and driving factor for me because, you know, those guys were, were world class and I was sort of coming up and learning off them and trying to, you know, trying to beat them at everything, but, yeah, I think that sort of, that drive and that persistence to wanna to wanna contribute and 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 get in there taught me a lot. It also taught me a lot around, you know, you don't you don't sometimes always get what you want, mm. you know. I've got a very a very good mate of mine, Chris Whittaker, you know, him and I, you know, we we played in the Wallabies, you know, together pretty much our whole careers and we were both you know, Chris was behind George Gregan yeah. and I was kind of behind Timmy Horan and, and Jason Daniel. And, but you got to, yeah, and you, and, and you got to deal with that, getting the shits and thinking that you should be picked and wanting to get picked and, and sticking at it. And, yeah, I think that sort of certainly held me, held me in good stead and, and drove that competitiveness in me.
0: Yeah. But Nathan, how did you stay patient? Because there's some years where you and Chris were better than Tim. And George, but incumbency and obviously with combinations and things like that, the coach is reluctant to make changes. But still, you guys have got to remain patient to even remain on the bench. How did you do it for so long?
1: Yeah, it was, oh, it was difficult. Like, but at the end of the day, you sort of you got to put things in in perspective as well. Like we're at the we're involved with you know the elite top of our sport mm. um, at the time, so. What, what it really did highlight to me is you know you're you're put in that position for a reason by by coaches and being a coach now like dealing with players it's so interesting because you know I know what it's like to not get selected I know what it's like to have a head coach say to you oh you know mate everything's you, know, you you're training really well and the opportunities you get it you're sticking your hand up a lot but we're not we're going to go with someone else this week so I know that because I've been down that road but What's really important is the coaches that I was being dealt with at the time, they sort of they 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 inform me about how important I was to the team and how yeah. important I was to the squad with the qualities that I brought. So it's a matter of identifying what your contribution is and what your strengths are and, and then sticking to it. And then, you know, and you might get the opportunity, you might not, you know, I got I got a few opportunities, but it certainly didn't diminish my drive or my desire to want to be involved and want to contribute. So you might contribute on the field, but you might contribute off the field just as much.
0: Yeah, but, you know, the early part of your career, you know, you you accelerate pretty quickly because you make the 99 World Cup squad after making your debut in in 98. So you're only two or three seasons really into your professional rugby union career. So, mate, early on achieving so much, who kind of kept you kind of level-headed in that?
1: I think the, the environment that I was in certainly did that. Like the guys, the guys, those experienced guys, a lot of those guys had been to 91, 95 World Cups. Mm. So they were they were like senior players and, and they certainly set a really good standard around um, you sort of keeping a lid on everything and not getting too not getting too carried away with everything. Um, and if you did you certainly got knocked back in shape. But I suppose off the field off the field, it was, yeah, I suppose it was my family. I was always, always found myself pretty, pretty cruising, pretty, pretty level headed, yep. pretty level headed. I certainly did some stupid things like as a young, as a young professional. Yeah. And yeah, if, um, if, you know, if Instagram and as much videos and bloody whatnot were around when I was sort of a young wallaby growing up, I, mate, I don't know what would happen. It's, <laughs> um, it's not it's not it's thank god a lot of that stuff uh, wasn't around then but yeah you sort of my main focus was to understand what my contribution was be respectful of everyone and um yeah and get on with your business and realize how lucky you are to do what you do
0: yeah it's interesting you brought that up you know social media is obviously huge but i think we put too much you know on a lot of these players a lot of these players are 22 23 years old do you know i mean it's just like uh, like you just said, I'm not even a rugby professional rugby player. They were following me around when I was 22 and 23. They are acting like 22 and 23-year-olds. I understand their role yeah, models. exactly. I understand their role models. But just give them a little bit of a break in, in my regards because you don't have – some people that don't even know that they're getting followed or taped at times. So just give nah, them a break. I some of
1: the stuff, yeah, you, you shake your head sometimes at the stupidity. But then – yeah, you know, and and that's our responsibility as coaches to identify that and mm. go. Okay, yes, we're in a professional environment. Yes, these guys are getting paid money; they're role models. But like we we treat them like men, and yeah. in the in the rugby, from a in the male male arena, we treat them like men. But they're bloody they're kids. Yeah. Like they are kids. You've got to make mistakes. We and we sit around occasionally as coaches, and we go, well, what what were we doing it? 19 22. 19 between 19 and 22 some of this stuff that went down was just outrageous
0: but it's just so like funny sometimes it's important you, you have that yeah yeah you could be at the pub and you're discussing the behavior of these 22 20 and i'm like guys would we take advice life advice from 22 year old and we're cu- currently criticizing them for getting on the drink and doing something silly with their friends when we did so much worse uh,
1: exactly and yeah the if the spotlight yeah, a lot of people who get on the front foot and, and take a, a pretty solid position, if uh, if you spun the spotlight around on them and went back in time, I dare say their, uh, their writing or their words that they say would be significantly different or a little bit more toned down.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, mate. Now, take me to your debut, 98, Wallabies debut. Now, Rob McQueen's your coach. Is he the one that breaks the news to you?
1: Yeah, yeah, he... Um, he sort of said, "Mate, you could be getting an opportunity." Um, and yeah, from that moment, once you find out, you kind of yuck, you as, at that time because I'd been on the bench a fair bit. I was pretty, I was, I was ready to go, so I wasn't so much nervous. I was more um, just really concerned around making sure that I, I fulfilled the potential that those guys had in me, yeah, and the confidence that they had in me, and and the players around me as well. So yeah, it's uh it's an interesting one, but it's a. It's something that's really exciting and, yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah, mate, you know, you came through a golden era of Wallabies football, you know, led first by John Eels, and then obviously succeeded by George Gregan. When you look back at those leadership structures, what's the biggest thing that you take from those two gentlemen? Just
1: really different personalities, like different leadership styles. Um, George was a lot more confrontational, um, a little bit more outspoken, particularly amongst the group. And then you've got Eelsy, who's very, um, you know, borderline aloof and pretty mm-hmm. blase, but still very measured and very controlled and very um, analytical. So getting a balance and within that team as well, there was also a number of other leaders around, you know, around things on the field and things off the field. You've got Dave Wilson, um, you've got, you know, David Giffen, mm-hmm. um, a lot of those guys who, you know, Rod Kafer was in that space as well. You know, those guys who had a lot of experience and contributed a lot but didn't necessarily have the C next to their name or the, or the VC next to their name. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that, that I, I must admit I think lacks a little bit in, in rugby these days is, is a broader scope of leadership. Like a lot of guys just think, oh, well, he's the captain and I don't really have a responsibility or a role to play. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole other conversation.
0: But that's a no it's a really interesting conversation because you know from what you described, you've got fifteen leaders that are leading this squad. Well now it might be one or two. That's that's a big difference and a huge competitive advantage for the team from ninety nine.
1: Oh definitely. And it's I think it's it's the it's the it's a bit of a byproduct of professionalism where, you know, everyone everyone looks after their own backyard and everyone has to make sure that, you know, their contract's right and they're playing and they're, and they're performing so that they can be looked after and whatnot and players shifting clubs and jumping out of contracts left, right and centre and that ability to really commit to an organisation or a program and then contribute and, and feel as though, yep, I want to contribute to this place place to make it better and, and that's going to make the team better and the environment better. That's sort of, that's sort of lacking a bit now. Um, in a, in a lot of teams, and that's a byproduct of the landscape that professional sport is. And then you see these success, consistently successful organisations, and you you start digging into them a little bit, and then it's very very quickly you find out that there's been a consistency of leadership, a, a, a broad leadership base, um, and lots of people contributing. And then you go, okay, well, it's but it's easy to identify, very hard to replicate and and, and actually do it
0: yeah I can imagine Nathan when you first actually entered the wallaby setup was there anyone that you kind of really looked up to someone that you know you saw do the extras was just you know you spoke about those great leaders before was there anyone in particular that really caught your eye and you started doing and implementing things that they they did to your game?
1: Oh Timmy as a player Tim- another player Yeah Timmy Hor he was the king. Um he you know, the way he trained, the way he the way he interacted with the other players, had a really good sense of humor, like could really, you know, really be very dry and take the piss all the time. Yeah. But when it was but when it was on, when it was training time, when it was game time, he was uh he was on. So certainly learned a lot around around him and how he prepared. Daniel Herbert as well was another person who I learned a lot off around. Yep how to prepare. Um, and I, remember, I even remember as a young kid, um, or when I say young kid, like an 18, 19-year-old, like thinking on a training day as a whole, wonder, wonder what those blokes are doing today. Like I reckon, I reckon if I'm going to the pub or I'm going to go and do a session down the park, what's what's Timmy Horn and what's Daniel Herbert doing? What yeah. are they doing today? And then I sort of I, I use that as a bit of a motivational thing as well. So. It's um yeah certainly those two guys jumped out at me and um yeah it's people who I sort of looked up to
0: yeah I heard you speak on Berkey's podcast about Tim calling you when you did your ACL were you surprised that he got yeah. in touch that was pretty cool
1: mate it's awesome and I and I do it and I and I do it now to to players and I did it as a player as well it's um yeah it was really it was just highlights how good a what type of person that he is and you know at the time we were. We were like going for it in mm. terms of that um, Wallaby number twelve jersey, and um, <clears throat> and yeah, for him, he's just sort of just showed what kind of guy he was, and and how and what sort of rugby's all about. You know, it's you know it's going to get better, and and the number of number of young kids that I've spoken to about it since then, you know, they do their knee or they redo it again.
0: It's um
1: yeah, just that support and providing a bit of a. a a
0: comforting voice makes a huge difference yeah I totally agree now mate for winning the 99 world cup what does a player receive when you actually win
1: uh, you get like a little got like a little medallion okay yeah little medallion and that's it it's yeah somewhere somewhere in here okay uh, how many days did the yeah. boys party
0: for
1: well it we went pretty hard um from from memory, we like flew out like the next afternoon, so it was pretty. It was pretty big, and then we came back to Australia, and they had like a ticker tape parade and yeah. or whatnot. So that's all. That's all. That's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. but <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> mate. How did it feel? Two thousand and one. You know, British and Irish Lions don't come to town every year. You know, what, what is it? Every yeah. ten years or something? What, what's the What's the actual years?
1: Well, they were—they used to do it every twelve years. Every yeah, they do New Zealand and then Australia, and yeah, it's it's bloody long time between drinks.
0: Yeah, is it why? But mate, you get to start. You started every test, and you're starting against the pretty much what they say is the best inside centre in the world in Brian O'Driscoll. So, how did it feel to yeah. be finally in as a starter? And then, obviously, we know the result of how you went against Brian as well.
1: Yeah. Um. It's a real interesting it's an interesting one for me because that's um I, I sort of I, I I personally put that above the World Cup. Mm. Um because for me that was that was where I really felt as though I contributed like I started in every test and I, I contributed re- a lot to the team. Yeah. Um, you know, in ninety nine I I I played against USA, I got a bit of time off the bench, but you know, I don't. I don't really feel as though I contributed an awful lot to that. But yeah. in two thousand and one, yeah, that was that was that was the rugby highlight for me. Um, and what an experience it was. it was! It was it was it was fun. It was stressful. It was it was awesome. And and that whole series, those games where they came out and played, they played the Brumbies, they played the Waratahs, they played the Reds. It was just a fantastic, fantastic time. And yeah, that was that was certainly my. My rugby highlight,
0: yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, mate, New South Wales Waratahs, you know, highlights through the whole thing. You know, obviously, you guys make the 2005 final, but Crusaders beat you. Flip side, yeah. when you're coaching 2014, you guys, you, you're part of Czechs coaching staff as yeah. the Waratahs beat the Crusaders. Now, I can only imagine how much it hurts to lose as a player. Did it make up for it, winning as the coach?
1: No, not not at all. It's it's totally different Mm. as a as a as a player um, compared to being a coach. It's it's totally different. You have such a different sense of achievement or a different sense of disappointment Um, as a as a as a player. um, You know, you you get that disappointment. You're so gutted because you're so close, and it's all about you and your teammates and and the opportunity missed and you go over everything but as a coach it's you got a you got a different hat on you 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 or this is my as me as a coach my concern is for the players it's all for the experience that they that they're going through the excitement that they're going through There's, like I still I still remember the um the 2014 the final the when the Waratahs beat the Crusaders like I, I wasn't jumping around and carrying on I mm. was just watching the players and that was such a great sense of satisfaction just sitting back and watching them and just going oh those blokes are never going to forget that for the rest of their lives and that's and that's something as a coach that's a really unique thing that you can do that you can contribute to that you know and that's and that's part of the that's part of the joy and the love of why I why I do coach because you see that disappointment, you see mm. that excitement, and you're, and you're helping contribute to that in, in some way.
0: Yeah, it, it is an interesting concept that the Super Rugby competition does have with a home team getting to host the grand final because let's face it, 2005, you guys had a gun team, but the Crusaders yeah. have a gun team as well. So pretty much yeah. whoever's going to be playing at home like realistically will win 99 times out of 100. Like, did you yeah, guys there, really? There would,
1: there would be a stat on that. There would be a stat on that. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I, but at the end of the day, it's a competition, and everyone has the same the same opportunity to earn that home final. So yeah. if you're good enough to earn the home final, then good luck to you. I guess, yeah, that's 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 sport.
0: Yeah. Flip side, you know, going back to 2014, when obviously Waratahs get the penalty to yep. for Bernard to kick the winning goal. Like yeah. realistically, if the the crowd factor is huge. That's the fourth. That's the sixteenth man in rugby because, realistically, if the psychological I've, I've refereed before, the crowd is a factor yeah. in the decisions that you make, hundred percent, and it flows yeah. across but the whole yeah. whole game. Yeah. The, that that is just yeah, the true. advantage of having a home team. It's just like, but it'll be interesting to see maybe. You know, I guess because of the physicality of rugby, I guess you you can't have more than one game like the NBA. Because I think with the NBA, you can have seven games, but there's, the physicality is ten percent of what rugby is. That's the reason why. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's always yeah. Yeah. yes and
1: no. Like I've often thought about, like you, like those guys in the in the states. Like that's the physical demands of playing. You know, three games in a week. From on those guys in the NBA. Like, they are not small dudes and mm, they get around yeah. and, and, and they're fine. Like, the, 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 the capabilities of the human body is, um, is a very, very interesting thing to go into. And, yeah, it's, mate, rugby, the rugby blokes have got it easy. Agreed. they got it easy. Mate. <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, definitely. definitely.
0: So, Nate, after that Super Rugby, you, you know, wrap up your career here in Australia. What, uh, what was the move... What was behind the move to Japan?
1: Um well it was with two thousand four, two thousand and four, um, at the end of two thousand and four, Matt Burke was um at the TARS and um and then he just got he got cut at the end of two thousand and four. And I was and I was in the team and this bloke is a flat out legend. Yeah. And it really it really spooked me. I was I was thinking, well, I've been in the team for a while, and um, probably coming to the end of my of my career playing in Australia and really thriving and enjoying it. And then the Waratahs were sort of holding off on contract negotiations, and and I was going, okay, yeah, well, these guys obviously might be looking to move me on. And I had a very good friend of mine who was playing in Japan, yep, and um, and he. He sort of said, oh, look, if you're ever interested in heading over there, um, these guys would be keen and the club actually was going to sign Daniel Herbert but it fell through for some other reason and, and they said, oh, mate, there's an opportunity there. So at the end of the 2004 season, I'd been a bit spooked and hadn't re-signed or anything. The opportunity came up and I said to the I said to the Tars, well, I'm going to I'm going to make a call and I'm going to I'm going to tell you that I'll be leaving at the end of next year. And um yeah and just and made the call myself and chatted with my manager and we went yeah okay let's 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 do it. Uh so going into the 2005 season that I knew that that was going to be my last season there and yeah there were a few people in in that environment in that coaching environment that thought oh you know he's signed He's signed he's done here he's finished and we won't pick him and whatnot and yeah, that pissed me off and I ended up, yeah, I was pretty, I was very fortunate. I had got the, got the players player for that year and we played in the final and, um, you know, it was a, it was a good year for me. So I would have loved to have stayed in Australia and yeah. And, and played for a bit longer, but no, that's it. That's it. It happens. It's done. and, And you get on with it.
0: Yeah. What was the standard of footy like in Japan?
1: Well, where I went, I went to a team called, uh, Huden, which is an electric power company based in Fukuoka, yeah, and they're in they're in second division. Okay. So part of the deal, part of my deal, was you'd have to go over, play and coach as well. Um, and they signed another Australian coach, a guy called Adrian Thompson, who, who's you know a very successful, good coach, mm. and he went over there, and so we went over together, and I sort of coached, started helping out coaching with with Tomo and. And just loved it. I really, really loved it. The standard the standard was it was frustrating because the standard wasn't wasn't that great. But yeah. in terms of opportunities to try things and pass on some knowledge, it was yeah, I'll I'll never forget it. It was really, really
0: enjoyable. But mate, coaching. Now this was something you didn't want to do at the start because you did all your degrees. I know you're passionate about marketing and advertising. Yep. Now what made you like I know it was part of your deal, but What made you pursue it post the deal?
1: Yeah, I, 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 when I, once I got into it, I, I just felt really empowered and it was really, it was really positive and made me feel good being able to pass on information and and watching these guys not only grow as footy players, but Mm. also as like young men, like the Japanese guys, they work in, they work in the company, they, They've, they've got the job for life and rugby for them is a real avenue and a real outlet to be able to you know go away with their friends and travel a bit more and mm. never spend time with their wives and girlfriends and whatnot and um so being a part of that and helping and seeing them grow and understand the game and and study the game more it was it was really good and it, it challenged me as well because I had to learn ways to get the information through to them and communicate with them and yeah different coaching styles on how you're going to get things done it was really it was a good grounding for me I think in coaching and and then yeah and then in 2010 Rod McQueen gave me a gave me a call and said oh I'm involved in the Melbourne Rebels who are kicking off um next year and I was just sort of scanning your interest if you'd like to apply for one of the coaching positions and I I was like, "Oh wow!" And it was at the time I'd been in Japan for sort of five years, and yep. it was good, good to get looking for an opportunity to potentially come home. And yeah, everything, everything sort of fell into place there. And then I headed to Melbourne. We headed to the, to Melbourne with a family, and yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, being a part of a new a new organisation, contributing to the culture of the place, and laying a foundation for what is now the the Melbourne Rebels was. Was something that was really exciting. And yeah, I jumped at it.
0: Mate, have you had a good chance to, you know, they talk about a coaching philosophy. Now, for your own coach, like you're, you're very lucky, you know, you've done a master's in business, but realistically, even with your playing experience, if you have a look at all the coaches, starting from Bob Dwyer all the way, Rod McQueen, working under check, like, mate, you've done a master's in, in coaching in the experience that you've got. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't buy what yeah, the experience that you've been given. But in terms of a coaching philosophy, have you, have you had much of a chance to have a think of that?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a big believer in – and it's been interesting because I've been an assistant coach for all of my career. Mm. Um, you, can, you can develop philosophies and you can have different ways if you want to do things, but um, ultimately – you're underneath the philosophy of your head coach and that's what you that's what you need to that's what you have to pass on and you have to instill that in your in your coaching style and obviously as a defense coach which is which is my passion um, my expertise is you have you communicate with the head coach around your defensive philosophy around what the goals of your defense and whatnot are but the overarching whole philosophy of the team comes from that head coach so yeah, I've got. I've certainly got some ideas that I want to that I'll look to want to try and do. And yeah, de- defensively, simply defensively, in my philosophy is uh, I want to I want to provide an environment where the players can defend, have a good, comfortable understanding of what we want to do, and get the ball back. Like everything goes back to getting the ball back. So why are we defending? Because we want to get the ball back. Why are we having this defensive structure set up? Because we want to get the ball back. Why am I? Why am I using these techniques? Because I want to get the ball back. Everything at your defensive breakdown is all tailored towards getting the ball back. So from a defensive perspective, that certainly highlights my philosophy and as an overarching um, rugby philosophy, it's it's a game that has so many little nuances to it but is very, very simple. And if you do the simple things really well, that is your point of difference. And it sounds so crazy, but it really is like young guys coming through these days, understanding that concept of, you know, mastering the skill, mastering the basics of the fundamentals of the game. And for me, that's catch, pass, break down and and tackle. Um, If you master those things, you are going to be light years ahead of most of the rugby players in the world. So mastering those skills is something that I'm very strong about and then I'd like to, you know, I'd like to have a pressure philosophy around everything you do in the game is is focused on pressure. Yep. You're you're moving pressure through the way you play, and eventually the the opposition's gonna gonna succumb to that pressure, and you're gonna find yourself at the end of the day on the right side of the score sheet under that pressure philosophy. So it sounds very very simple, but there's there's lots of layers to it, but. Yeah, having a, a pressure a pressure game as a overarching philosophy is something that I yeah I want to I want to strive towards.
0: Mm. Yeah, you have been assistant for so long at different levels, both domestically and internationally. You know, just speaking to a lot of coaches just recently, some of them don't want to become a head coach for yourself. Yep. Is that something that you aspire to be?
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things that if if you don't if you don't do it, um, how are you going to know if you're good at it or not? Mm. It's you know, I'd rather have a real growth mindset around myself as a as a coach, um, and looking for those ways to do that. And I think it'll it'll help me as a as a coach to go through that process, um, to learn a different part of the game from looking looking at a difference, looking at it through a slightly different lens as a, as that head coach. And you know, I might be I might be I might be rubbish at it. Um, but unless I, unless I have a go, I'm not going to, I'm not going to know. It's the same as, yeah, same as your kids riding a push bike, get on the bike and ride it. You might fall off. Yep. And, uh, but you're never going to know. And I I do it with my son the other days, he, he had a stack on his bike and he had a big graze, he had a big graze on his leg. And um, he came in and he's having a bit crying and whatnot. And I was like, okay, well, mate, I'll get the betadine. And he's like, well, what are you going to do with the betadine? Are you going to put the betadine on it? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, is it going to hurt? And I was like, well, yeah, it's going to hurt, <laughs> but it's going to make it better <laughs> as opposed to going, no, 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 mate, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Yeah. And then you whack it on there and it, and it kills him. So I'm I'm all about, you know, I'm all about having a go at things and, and being up, up upfront and honest, and you're not going to know unless you try. So that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at.
0: Yeah, nice. I like that, eh, Now, mate, Michael Checker, when and where did you meet him for the first time?
1: When I met Check for the first time as a player, okay. um, I got selected at the end of 97. The Waratahs had a development tour to the UK. So they played the Super, or well, it might have been Super 10s or something, I think, back then. And they had a development tour to the uk so all the the bulk of the wallabies um, weren't available to go away and they took a group of young guys um, on that trip and I was a what was it, 21 year old 20, 22 year old got that opportunity went on that trip and we're in, uh, we're in London and Czech was actually playing over in Italy and he they were short on back rowers so he was flying back through so they asked him if he'd come and play for two of the games okay and he's and check was he was oh yeah not, i know didn't, i didn't know him at the time but he rocked in and i knew that he was a bit of a Randwick legend and i walked through the hotel and he was standing there and the old, in the denim jeans with a white t-shirt the aviator son on and and he, I kind of, I introduced myself, said hello. He kind of just looked at me as though I didn't exist, and, <laughs> and kept going on. And we ended up playing a couple of games, but I didn't. I didn't have a conversation with him outside of that at all. He was way too cool for me. Yeah. And um, and we we joke we joked about it. We still joke about it now. How much of a how much of a rock star he was. Um. But yeah, that was that was the first time I met him, mate. Eh? The first time I met him.
0: Mate, would you be open? Because he's doing work with the Roosters. There's talk about Eddie Jones coming back and doing the shark. Yeah, would you be open to another sport?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you sort of, um, it's it's the, the applications of what you're doing are quite are quite similar. Yeah. Um, and um, but you're always like I've done some stuff with the AFL around learning around defensively around the way they defend. Definitely, I've. Fitzy, I, I chat with Fitzy a fair bit around defence and, mm. and what goes on in in league and how they look to control their tackle contest and whatnot. You're always, I'm a I use uh, Lisa Alexander from the from the Diamonds. She's a she's a coaching mentor for me who I bounce ideas off regularly and good mates with um, Anthony Seabold nice. down the Bronx and yep. you just it's it's you, you you're always looking at finding ways to improve yourself personally, but also a lot of the times you talk to these really experienced coaches and they're reinforcing what you were thinking anyway and that's and that's something that's really powerful. But, yeah, looking at coaching in another sport, uh, the nuances and the the structures would be difficult to pick up, but I think the philosophies around trying to get the best out of your athletes, which all coaches are trying to do, is something that, yeah, that is transferable and... Yeah, well, I'm interested to see how uh, really enjoyed the time he spent with the Roosters and whatnot. Yeah, and he's doing a bit of a bit of a macro focus on their coaching group and how they interact. And he's a bloody smart cookie. So and and Robbo and him are best mates. So they've got that really good understanding of being really honest with each other and 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 saying it how it is.
0: Yeah, just with Cheek, you know, last year you didn't get the results that you wanted, but just interviewing a few of the boys. Their biggest thing is they would run through a wall for check. What is it about his relationship with his players that he can get to that level with them?
1: I think it's his empathy um, and and also his drive. Like he's very he's very clear with how he wants to play and what the expectations are of the players. And if someone if someone's very clear with you with their expectations and what they expect, and you make the choice, you either deliver or you don't. Mm. Um, and that, and that is a, and that's something that's, that's really simple, uh, but very difficult to continually and consistently deliver on. Um, and he's got a real, he's got a real sense of empathy around understanding what the players are going through and, and their, their needs and their, their issues. And, you know, he's always there for them and provides. And there's so much stuff that he's done over the years that, Oh my mate, if I could if I could tell you some of the stuff he's done for these for these guys off the field mm. that no one will never know about, um, is a real testament to him as a man and also as a as a coach because, you know, players sometimes, you know, people watch them play on a Saturday and they don't play well and the reason might be so abstracted or the week that they've had, they might've lost a family member of which we had at the, we had at the Wallabies, you know, we had two guys lose their fathers um, during the season. Um, And that, that in itself, dealing with that is something that um, is a real skill of checks. And yeah, certainly something I've learned and want to, want to mimic around my coaching and my coaching style.
0: Yeah. That personal side of things like you just described, when you were playing, Nathan, did you have anyone close to check in that sort of regard?
1: No, I didn't. To be honest, mm. um, I had—I certainly had—not so much head coaches. There were certainly um, assistant coaches that I had really, really good relationships with, of which I still um, still speak with now. Um, you know, Scotty Wiseman or yep. uh, Andy Friend, who was at the Tars when I first started there. Brian Mulrose, who I still speak with who's a, who coached me at the Waratahs yep um, you know those little relationships that you that you create with coaches um, are really important and yeah and as you said before I've I've been I've been lucky enough I've been coached by some pretty pretty bloody good coaches okay. so I've learned a lot from those guys what to do and also a few things that I probably wouldn't do as well.
0: (laughs) Now, Nath, final question is just around handling pressure because in the lead up to the World Cup and pretty much the whole of last year, you know, rugby usually isn't in the the media in terms of back pages and things like that. But all year there was always talk about what would happen with Czech and you guys on the coaching staff. And to take NRL off the back page, you know, there's obviously interest in what was happening in rugby union. But for you yeah. guys as coaches, how hard is it to do your job when it's continuously speculated day after day in the media?
1: It is hard. It, it's hard, but the personality that, you know, that I am and I know, I know that Czech is and, and other coaches are, you, you are so engrossed in what you're doing um, around optimising the environment that you're in and getting the best out of the players and preparing. You you try and I see it as just noise. I went through yeah when it was was pretty heavy and stuff was going on. I just went, I just made a few decisions around. I'm not reading any newspaper or any article or any social media feed or anything. I was just fucking getting on with my job yeah. and and I'd go to bed at night and I'd think, okay, well have I have I have I done everything that I wanted to do today around my job and, and doing the best possible job that I could. And I'm, and I was really comfortable. And for me, it's the same with it's the same with games. If as a coach, if you've done the best possible job you can do, and you're not bullshitting yourself, and you've prepared yourself well, and you've put the time in, and and you've got the guys ready, then you know Saturday becomes you know an enjoyment where you're actually seeing the work being executed on the field and seeing the players doing those things, going through the ups and downs, but. You know that's that's certainly something that I really focused on was controlling what I could control and that was how I worked and how I prepared and how I mentally charged it the day and the year um so that was that was a real good coping mechanism for me i yeah and all my friends they would say, "Oh what about this that did, mm. did you see this or did you hear that or my mum and dad ringing me up going, "Oh Nathie, I've seen this about that and because I never, I didn't read it or I didn't even wasn't across it, I was, it wasn't just noise to me. I was, well, that's, that's, it is what it is because there's the minute you think you're going to control those situations, yeah. you're dreaming. So, yeah, control what you can and, um, and focus on what your outputs are and don't worry about what everyone else's is.
0: Yeah. Some bloody good advice there, mate. Now, Nathan, final question, my dinner party question. Now, you've got five invites to a private oh, okay. dinner party. This is five people. Five people now. Only rules: no family or friends, but you can invite anyone, oh. dead or alive. Who would you like to invite to dinner, my man?
1: Oh, Winston Churchill is number one. Yep. Um, he's a he's a freak. Um, Margot Robbie.
0: Wait, she's already coming to my party. She can't come to yours. Outstanding. Um.
1: Five people, five more. Scott Wise, man, because he talks underwater with a mouthful of marbles. You <laughs> um, <laughs> think. Five more people.
0: You only need 2 we You've done three already. Two more. Yeah, I've
1: done three. Two
0: more. Two more people for dinner.
1: Um, let's go... Dennis Rodman.
0: Yeah, um, I'm. I'm assuming you've enjoyed the last dance.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah. You never really know with him.
0: So um, I need some. I need another. I need another woman there. Was there any Dennis Rodmans back in the Wallabies? Oh yeah, for
1: sure. Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> Multiple.
1: <laughs> Multiple. Oh, person My grandfather. I go my grandfather that I never met. Perfect. Yeah, that's a good one. Bring him back. Yeah, I oh, know. No, no. The other no, no but I'll dead. give I you know. the
0: exception. I'll give you an exception. So you've never <laughs> met him. Definitely. Hundred percent. He should come. No, haven't met him. But he's kind of family. So yeah. For sure. No. Nah, so I'd,
1: I'd like to know. I'd like to know his story that I never that I never found out about. Okay. Due to yeah, I just never found out about his his story. So I'd be interested to know.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, Nathan, really appreciate you joining me on the podcast, man. Loved all the stories, man wish you the best for 2020. Hopefully we see a bit of rugby and also you can get back to your stuff with the Sunwolves and also Australian rugby soon. So all the best to you and your family, buddy.
1: No worries. Thanks, Justin. Really appreciate being on board and um, yeah, thanks for your time and it was good fun.
0: And that guys was Nathan Gray. If you enjoyed that episode, please share it with your family and friends. Let them know where to, where to find all the episodes on Talking With TK, which of course you can find at www.talkingwithtk.com or, or pretty much across all the podcast apps as you guys know. Please get in touch Facebook or Twitter. I'm at Talking With TK. Instagram, you'll find me at Tristan Nell. Old school email if you want to get in touch. Tristan at Talking With TK.com. A really good episode coming up on episode 191. We've got Alex Corvo. So pretty much, after the the episode with donny singe they wanted me to follow up with some more high performance guys and you know donny and alex are two of the best in the business alex's record speaks for itself 11 years at the melbourne storm three premierships four years at the broncos two years at the warriors really ch- changing their tune as well and he's had four years at the queensland maroons and also six years at the australian kangaroos one of the best in the business really really interesting story he did play at the canberra raiders for a season he's a brother of mark corvo who played a number of seasons at a number of clubs, including Canberra Raiders and Adelaide Rams. So, really cool sporting sporting family, and they've done some great things post-footy as well. All right, guys, my book, Talking With Champions, that's out now. So, you'll find that at Dimex Booktopia and Angus and Robinson. But I really appreciate you joining me today. I hope you're all staying safe out there. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK. <music>